Hey everybody, welcome to the group. Oh, didn't go live yet. There we go. Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. I'm Steve uh, from Potent Ponics, and today we have Joey from the uh, Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. I love we that also- title too, by the way. It's a great YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we also have uh, Marty as well. Thanks for joining us, Marty. What's up, everybody? I'm not in chat yet, but I'm on my way. <laughs> um, uh, he is one of our absolute favorite YouTubers. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with him, uh, he runs. he's a botanist that travels the world documenting all kinds of plants and telling us about uh, all different things uh, while, while having a bit of fun doing it, some humor, uh, a little bit of vulgar language. Uh, I like to lovingly describe him as botany with my cousin Vinny. Uh, so uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we're super, super happy to have him on. So thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, th- I mean, thanks for having me, man. Sorry it took a while to get my shit together and, you know, finally, <laughs> finally be able to sit down and do it. So not a problem <laughs> at all. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, and what you do. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess the last the last couple of years. Uh, I mean, I've I got on a botany probably fifteen years ago, and uh, it started off with an interest in geology, and then I got into plants, and then I was just I've always been into propagating plants. I mean, I think that's the the best way to get to know a plant that's the best it's a hands-on method of education uh it's you know there's so many questions to ask yourself while you're doing it why is you know why does uh for instance the number one being why does my plant look like shit why is it dying (laughs) um and uh you know i think i just uh it started i i took a redwood cutting from a park i used to live in san francisco from a, the base of a tree, like a, it was just a epicormic uh, sprout, uh, <clears throat> base sprout from the a, a tree in Golden Gate Park, and I uh, I rooted that, and it took off, and the tree, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I just heard you could do it. I wrapped in like paper towel or something, and it actually sent out roots, and uh, I just became uh, enamored with the idea of growing things, and then uh, started doing that. I was initially just in the trees, and then you know, conifers especially, and then would read about them and just wanted to learn about them. And and I enjoyed the fact that they were kind of tied to this idea of deep time too. You know, conifers had their heyday during the Jurassic, uh, you know, flowering plants didn't evolve to 125 million years ago. Before that, conifers were the big, the big thing. They were everywhere. And, um, and I kind of was always amazed by that, that how old they were and that they're still alive today. These lineages evolved uh, however long ago. And so that, you know, viewed through that lens of geologic time and deep time and, uh, and evolution and speciation and how, you know, a variation on a form can evolve into multiple different lineages that look completely different. Each one, you know, some are adapted to dry climate, some are adapted to hot, humid uh, rainforest uh, it just became learning about it became like a choosing your own adventure book to me and so uh i just had this i always had a million questions and i was always trying to answer them and then every time i'd answer one it opened up 10 more questions and so here i am now i'm like 15 years later uh you know i'm 
traveling all over the world to go look at plants and, and show them to other people, uh, mostly to get people excited about them. And, uh, you know, botany probably saved me. For, I don't know why I'd probably be in fucking jail or, uh, you know, have committed suicide or killed someone else <laughs> if I didn't have it. I mean, it's, it really, uh, you know, like I've said so many times, the human world can be so bleak and, uh, this other world that's the world of science and the world of natural history and the world of geology and understanding the larger context of the planet and even the universe that you live on, that you live in, um, can really be a, a, a fucking liberating uh, thing, you know, and it gives you a, a, a context that, it, it gives you a context to understanding your world that most other people look to in religion or, or something that's, you know, obviously, made up and, and man-made whereas all this stuff you know we have fossils we have uh we have the the geologic record we have ways of understanding it like actual fucking evidence shit like that yeah, yeah there's actual evidence even some even though some people still refuse to believe it i mean there's actual evidence if, if we've got dna we can look at dna and see how lineages broke off and species evolved and and how closely related certain species and lineages of organisms are so that's what I do. And that's, that's where I'm at now. And, you know, I'm, most of the time I'm not at home. I'm out traveling around filming stuff, taking tons of pictures. Uh, you know, whether it's the deserts of Baja, Mexico, or, or I was just in New Caledonia. I've been to Western Australia. I've explored the Atacama last uh, December. And, uh, you know, I just want to keep doing that and filming shit and showing it to other people and, and learning about it myself and then sharing that knowledge with others. Yeah, I, I love, especially your New Caledonia stuff was, was really amazing to watch. Uh, I wanted to jump back a second to something you said about the genetics. Um, uh, do you know much about the pitcher plants as far as the pitcher formation? Is that a similar gene? Or I know that they've evolved separately and they have different digestive juices, but um, is that, you know, the pitcher formation itself, is that also very, you know, completely separate uh, genetically, do you know, or? Well, you've got a couple different pitcher plants. You've got the Saraceniaceae, which are the uh, New World, you know, New World, i.e. the Americas, they're mostly in the uh, southeastern United States. You've got Darlingtonia Californica in California and Southern Oregon. Um, and those are all a lineage. Those are all a clad. You know, you've got the, they even go into South America. You've got the uh, Heliamphora in the high altitude tapuis in Venezuela and um, French Guiana, but that's all Saraceniaceae. Then you've got Nepenthes, which is its own family, which are the, you know, the, you get them in Borneo, you get them in Australia, you get them in, there's a species in New Caledonia, um, and that's Nepenthes. And then you've got, you know, completely unrelated to either one of those, you've got Cephalotus follicularis, which is just a fucking anomaly. I mean, it's, it's in Western Australia, it's its own weird, you know, it, it's, this is where, uh, you know, shit gets weird. And this is where people really, you know, our human understanding of evolution is so, it t it's so hard to comprehend at first if you've not learned about it before, because here's Cephalotus, here's a plant that looks exactly like Nepenthes. Same structure, it's got the peristome, that kind of ridged lip around it, uh, but it's completely unrelated. It's just convergent evolution. It's like cacti and, you know, the, the African euphorbias, you know, both uh, evolved the same morphology and physiology as a way to deal with the environments that they were in. You know, 
cacti and euphorbia. They both, you know, they both evolved in these these really hot subtropical, uh, you know, seasonally dry uh, regions, and so they both evolved spines and they both evolved succulents, succulents to deal with the aridity, the seasonal aridity, and spines to prevent things from eating them. Because when you're a, a large growing uh, plant, you're going to be the first thing on the menu for any uh, mammals or herbivorous mammals around. So, uh, you know, but they look alike. I mean, cacti and euphorbs to a non-botanist look a lot alike. Uh, you know, the the uh, ontogeny with a, the tissue from which their spines developed is different, um, but they look a lot alike, but they're completely unrelated, you know. Um, euphorbia also have the toxic latex in their tissues. But well, cephalotus is the same thing. Cephalotus follicularis looks just like Nepenthes. It, they both have the peristome, like I said, that ridged lip around the, the opening of the pitcher, but they're completely unrelated. And, and when I first saw that, you know, I saw it, I'd never seen cephalotus until a friend who's a carnivorous plant guy, he runs, uh, my friend Damon, who runs uh, California carnivores up, up in Sebastopol, great fucking nursery. He's a really cool guy. He showed me cephalotus and gave me a, specimen of it and I my mind was fucking blown because it looked just like an Nepenthes. I would have thought it was an Nepenthes if I hadn't seen the flower. And uh and that kind of that blew my mind just in terms of the whole convergent evolution thing that two things can evolve to look the same or so close they can evolve to look so similar even though they're so completely unrelated. And uh so you know it's uh you you asked about the tissue, I'm kind of going off on a fucking disjoint around here, but you asked about the tissue, um, what what are the genes for? You know, I, in, in Saraceniaceae, they're just modified leaves. Um, I'm not sure with cephalotus, I, I was, I think I forgot what stuff, I was reading a bunch of papers about it when I was down there, but cephalotus is, um, you know, the Western Australian one. I forget what what genes drive that, but I mean, either way, that's you know, it it kind of, there's there's three different three different families that start off with the pitcher plants, and you know, they're all they've all just evolved in the same way, and they're all completely unrelated to each other. So, uh, not sure if that was the best answer to your question. That might have been fucking all over the place, just a shotgun style approach. But there you go. Uh, I got a, another question that we've definitely uh, asked ourselves before. How do you remember all the different lane names? Do you have some kind of way? Are you just uh, really good with memory, or uh, do you have uh, you know some kind of trick to, to keeping all the Latin names in your head with all the well, different? I mean, I, I've always been good with vowels and numbers, but I mean, honestly, it's getting worse as I get older. You know, it's fucking. I think it's you know, <laughs> I think I've seen so much shit at this point that I have trouble remembering. A big help, though, is uh, the app iNaturalist. You know, you can log everything you've you've seen. At this point, I got nearly 4,000 observations, and uh, I can look up. You know, if I forget a genus name that I saw in southern Mexico, I can. But I know what family it's in, and I'll be able to remember what family it's in just because I know families of plants. It's like you know your friends. You know, I know the family of plants. I interact with them every day. I see relatives in that family that you know, species, genera and species in that family that grow up where I live. And so I know the, the flower structure, et cetera. Plant families are all grouped by flower structure. So I can go to INAT and I can look up, say, Asteraceae 
and look up my observations in that family and then select, you know, Mexico where I was and give me a list of everything that I've seen that's in that family in Mexico and I can remember uh, genera. So that's a big help. I mean, without iNaturals, I'd be fucked. It's like a, it's, it's like a way, I mean, if anything, and this is what I tell people, just get it for yourself so you can remember everything you've seen. You know, it's like carrying a notebook of field notes around with you and your fucking phone. Um, it's a really great fucking app. Uh, and then, of course, if people are just trying to learn, you know, they can put things up on INAT and it'll, somebody will identify it if they're unsure what a plant is, et cetera. You know, so it's, I can't stress it enough. It's kind of buggy. It could be a pain in the ass. I still find myself cursing at it at times, but overall, it's a, it's a wonderful tool. So that helps a lot. And then just, I mean, yeah, I mean, if, if I meet a new plant, you know, and I'm not familiar with it, sometimes I'm, I'll, I'll see a plant. I'll, I'll learn a new plant and it's not that charismatic. It's just kind of there or whatever, but sometimes I'll see a new plant and it'll fucking blow my mind and I'll get so amped on it. And then it's boom, it's already, you know, locked in your, in your memory. It's like, you know, people, human beings tell you their names, you forget it five seconds later, but then you, you know, you go have a conversation with that person or, you know, positive or negative, you're going to remember. And the more you interact with them, the more, <laughs> the more you remember the names. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I just comes kind of naturally, I guess. Do you find at some point that like you can't just go for a walk in the park anymore? You're you're like, oh look over there, there's a there's this and there's that. Like uh, sometimes my wife gets annoyed when I when I pepper her with uh, useless plant facts, as, as she likes to call them. You ever yeah. you with that? I mean, that's yeah. I, I mean, my neighborhood I live in, I know. There are certain yards that have weird plants in them that someone planted who maybe doesn't live there anymore. And maybe they moved away. They planted it 20 years ago. But now they got a huge fucking specimen of like a monkey puzzle tree or some cool uh, member of the Malvaceae. And I mean, I, my wa my whole life is like that. Yeah, I walk around and I got to check on everything. I'm, you know, I've watched this plant for the, I watched this, this shrub, this, uh, shrub which is actually like a rare member of the solanaceae the nightshade family i've watched it for the past five years oh cool it's flowering now and then i know okay it flowers and it attracts these kinds of birds to it that eat the seeds or whatever i mean it's 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 a really uh intriguing you know so going for a walk isn't just going for a walk anymore it's kind of like going to see old friends going to see a painting that evolves a painting that changes uh you know with the months I'm trying to convince her that that makes it more fun, but apparently that's not the case. <laughs> well, I, I was, I just came back from Zimbabwe and I thought it was totally bizarre that I was in Harare and I knew probably 90% of the plants, which was completely freakish to me because they were mostly British or, or other European stuff. There was, there was very little actual African plants in downtown Harare because it was oh, a sure. British colony. Yeah, that's how most that's how most human settlements are. Unfortunately, people never respect the native flora. They they always feel like they gotta you know improve upon it with uh, what I call horticultural atrocities. <laughs> Just things <laughs> that are planted, you know, like oleander. Like fucking Christ, the only redeeming thing about oleander is that it's toxic and it'll kill you if you eat it. I mean, that thing is planted. It's it's just it's it's like being beaten over the head with the same plant i mean it's planted everywhere they call them freeway flowers here in california because it's just it's horrible and it sucks because it's probably a cool plant in whatever ecology and ecosystem it evolved in but here i'm just 
I want to throw up when I see it. Same thing with London plane trees and Bougainvillea. You know, Bougainvillea is a really cool member of the Nictaginaceae, but it's fucking, hor it's everywhere here. It's horrible. I'm, you know, it's just way overplanted. It reminds me of shopping centers and suburban tract housing. It's sad, you know, but, uh, but luckily native, the whole concept of native plant gardening has taken off, um, you know, as well as not planting things just because of how they look, but planting things for pollinators, for birds and bees to, you know, basically create fucking habitat, you know, in the bleakness of a city. So. So, so what got you started uh, with your YouTube channel? What made you decide to kind of take your love of botany and, and uh, turn it into some videos? Uh, I was, I was doing it on Instagram just for fun, just for shits and giggles. And, you know, the stories would get deleted after a day. And so people recommended, they're like, you know, they told me, oh, you should do it on YouTube. And I said, ah, I'm not really, I'm not into editing and I wouldn't know how to do it. YouTube's kind of a shit. It's like a dumpster fire of just shitty comments. And, you know, <laughs> it just seemed like kind of a garbage can venue. But then I realized, well, the good thing was that these things would stick around longer than 24 hours and you know maybe if i'm dead in five years someone could be looking up you know a rare milkweed or some shit and type the plant in and it turns out my video is like one of the only two or three of that this thing has ever been caught you know there's the only footage of you know what i mean so uh you know we're living in the, the sixth mass extinction we're causing the sixth mass extinction we're not just living in it um and so a lot of these things aren't going to be here anymore in you know, three or four decades. I mean, and that's just, uh, that's just a cold hard fact, you know, and I don't like it any more than anyone else does, but there's no stopping this shitty train. Um, well, coronavirus could stop it. Maybe, you know, a pandemic that was a little bit more virulent than coronavirus, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so these things we're losing a lot. And I mean, I've watched habitats be destroyed in my lifetime. I've watched populations of rare plants be destroyed in the last 10 years so that you can't see them anymore. They only exist in botanic gardens. And so that was, that if anything was my main motivation was I wanna capture these things and get footage of them before they're gone, you know? And that's fucking morbid and it's sad, but that's our, that's the reality we live in. Uh, and, you know, I don't really get sad about it. I just get kind of angry. I guess you could argue anger is another, it's just a more complex form of sadness, but either way, uh, that's, that's why I started doing this. And then I think just to get people, you know, the other, the other reason was that, like I said, I mean, I, I think that learning about the world around you and diving into natural history and science, uh, can save people from depression. You know, I think it's, if anything, it's something else to just obsess over and get, get excited about, but also there's so much beauty there. Um, it's not all beauty. Nature can be fucking brutal and have a mean wrath too, but it's even when, you know, if nature destroys you or kills your family it's not personal it's not the same as if a person does it you know what i mean it's like uh you know say your you know your loved one gets killed in a fucking tornado or something it's not the same as if some fucking idiot was drunk driving and plowed needlessly plowed into them you know so uh i don't know i'm kind of going off on a rant here but i just the point is, is i think you know i get emails all the time these are the best ones i get that say like you changed my way of looking at the world uh, and thank you for that, you know, and I'm, I totally relate to that because this changed my way of looking at the world too. You know, I would probably be some, I'd probably be a lot angrier, more disgruntled than I am right now if I didn't have botany or an understanding of geology or 
for any of this stuff to go on. You know, this stuff saved my life. I think it saved a lot of other people's lives too. So. Yeah, that's really. I think so. I probably probably would have killed a couple of people. At least saved them, right? <laughs> or, or at least I would. Maybe I would have killed myself. I don't know. You know, but I think the other thing about <laughs> this way, stuff not, is not a great turnout. Is that I, you know, there's there's a humility that comes from understanding the world and your place in it. You know, you realize you're not that important and you're okay with it. You realize you're a small piece of the puzzle. You're okay with it. You realize, you know, the life's been evolving. The planet's been uh, doing what it does. Uh, the universe has been doing what it does for for millennia. Uh, you know, you understand the fucking Mesozoic was, you know. <laughs> only ended 66 million years ago and that ended with a massive extinction by from a comet hitting the fucking yucatan you understand your your life is a blink of an eye I, I, there's very few people who are passionate about this stuff who s don't seem to have a little bit of humility you know there's there's there everyone i know that studies this or is excited about plants or geology or whatever uh you know they understand their own insignificance and and I think that's uh, fuck, man. I wish we could imbibe celebrities and politicians and et cetera with that same kind of understanding. Because I think it's a it, it's a beautiful thing, you know. It's when you learn how small you are. Uh, I don't think that's depressing at all. I think it's liberating, and I think it's exciting, you know. So. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, tell us. What what uh what are some of the um rare on on, on the note that you're talking about a, a minute ago what are some of the rare plants that you've got a the pleasure of documenting um you know you talked about some of the you know the chances of different things that you might have documented what are some of the things that you know have been pretty uh pretty rare or hard to find that you had a, had the pleasure of, of you know documenting uh there was a plant in new caledonia i thought i would probably never see it was a it's the world's only parasitic conifer. It's a uh, hollow parasite on other plants, on one species of plant specifically, uh, Parasitaxis usta. And uh, it's it's brilliantly fucking colored. It's great. It's a member of a family of conifers, the Podocarpaceae that exists mostly in south, you know, the southern hemisphere. There's a couple you get in the northern hemisphere. You get a few species in Mexico. You get a few in Asia. Um, but it's a lineage that's been around since the Triassic. And, uh, and there's a ton of them on New Caledonia, which is like a little slice of a continent that uh, has all these relic taxa on it, all these relic plants that, that went extinct everywhere else that were probably more widespread, you know, 80 million years ago, but have since gone extinct there. So it's kind of like a botanical land of the lost. And, um, and Paris Ataxis was probably the fucking weirdest plant i mean it's it's so it doesn't have any chlorophyll it looks like a candy cane that gets like three feet tall it looks like a branched candy cane like pink white and purple candy cane and then it, the cones are these little berries they look like yew berries they're not technically berries they're it's still a gymnosperm they're naked seeds they're a conifer but uh and it parasitizes this other plant called a uh, falcatifolium uh taxoides and um which is also, you know, everywhere on at the higher elevations in New Caledonia. Uh, Parasitaxis is not everywhere, though. Parasitaxis is pretty weird. It's pretty rare, even on New Caledonia, and it's only in like thick forest, hard to get to. 
you can't, it's not a plant you can drive right up to. Um, and, you know, I, I was able to see two populations of it. And uh, I mean, that's a plant I've been looking at pictures of for 15 years and just never, I never thought I'd be able to see it. There wasn't any video footage of it uh, on online before. Um, there was not much, <clears throat> not much footage of it at all. And, uh, you know, I went and did a, did a couple of videos on it. And one of the populations we found it was, there was numerous plants coming up in this little swale, uh, this little like gully on top of this mountain with Ericaria mulleri all around it, which is another really weird ancient conifer, you know, it was around in the Jurassic. And, uh, and yeah, that, I mean, that thing, that was, that was really fucking cool to see. <clears throat> it was really weird. I mean, it lives, it can live inside its host. I mean, parasitic plants are just a whole other, they're for, just to begin with, they're a whole other realm of cool. But uh, to see this one, especially the only, you know, gymnosperm, the only conifer that's par a parasite. Yeah, it was fucking great. So, but I mean, there's, there's been so many, I mean, rare plants I'm always looking for because there's normally a reason they're rare, you know, they're adapted to a specific habitat that, you know, they're occupy a narrow niche. Uh, they recently speciated, they speciated a long time ago, maybe, and they're just left over. There's, there's numerous reasons, but there's always, you know, normally a pretty cool ecological or evolutionary reason for why, why a plant is rare. So uh, yeah, that was, that was probably top of my list. Number one. You find it's easy to like, spot plants that aren't native like especially like i'm from a pretty rural area in uh, northern california like just like right on the border um and we used to go hiking up the creeks and stuff a lot and uh, there's all kinds of old like mining settlements and different stuff around and you know you, i could almost always you know spot some foreign uh you know plant that somebody drug out there um, and then look around there and find some some Thorvald cabin or something around. So do you find that like that it's easy to spot? You're like, oh, that doesn't fucking belong here. What? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with, with, when you're used to a region's botany, you're used to the way the plants tend to look. In California, it can be pretty easy because we get a lot of plants with blue leaves. We get a we get a lot of uh, plants with hairs on them. And so when you see something, say like milk thistle, which can be a really nasty invasive species or scotch broom, you know, they don't have any of that. They're not blue. They don't have uh, tons of hairs on them. They look like, they look out of place, you know? And then especially when you see like scotch broom and it's forming a monoculture, native plants don't form monocultures, you know? They, nature doesn't like that. Nature the, nature likes a balance. So if, if native plants form monocultures, they, you know, they would have been checked uh, it, you know, the ecosystem's out of whack and something would eventually evolve to knock that monoculture back, like a, a bug that eats that species or a fungus that attacks it, et cetera. Uh, and so the, conifers earlier, right? Was it? Earlier you were talking about the overpopulation of conifers, how they kind of had a, you know, a, a heyday and, uh, and they got so populated, I remember right, when they, bring some sort of evolution that would decompose them because well no 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 they were just flowering plants hadn't evolved yet that's that's just the stage that uh that you know photosynthetic life was at in the jurassic it's just conifers were the main there, there were and when i say conifers i mean there were 
multiple lineages of conifers, some of which don't even have any living relatives today. You know, they, they got knocked out in the Cretaceous tertiary extinction or maybe before that, whatever. But, um, you know, that, that's just the, that flowering plants just hadn't evolved yet. I mean, there were, there was a cycad lookalike called the, the Benetites, the uh, Benetales. There was a, uh, all kinds of just weird shit that we have no, I mean, and then think about all the stuff that didn't get fossilized. So, no, no, I'm just, back then it was, it was just fly. I, mean, I just meant to say flowering plants hadn't evolved yet. They were, that was their heyday back, the conifers were, you know, back then that was, they were, they were the dominant large uh, form of photosynthetic life on earth and flowers evolved and kind of outcompeted them. Um, but I'm, but I'm just saying, you know, when you see a monoculture or something, it's, it's a big giveaway that, you know, when you see thousands of all the same thing and little else, it's a big giveaway that the plant probably isn't native, you know. You, you know, native plants don't do monocultures. There tends to be lots of diversity. Uh, ecosystems don't favor monocultures because, you know, eventually something, like I said, something will evolve to knock them back. Now, like with invasive species, um, you know, you'll go to, like, say, Sahara mustard. That's a really bad one that's fucking up the deserts right now. It's, it's, one plant produces hundreds of seeds. It can, it forms a thick kohlrabi-like root that grows in the soil, uh, just below the soil line. And they suck up water uh, and, and easily outcompete all these really cool, this really cool diverse array of desert annuals. Um, but, you know, if humans went extinct tomorrow and Sahara mustard was still just doing its thing in the desert, eventually something would evolve to check it. And so it would just become naturalized it wouldn't have any more gene flow with the Sahara mustard population back in the Sahara desert because people wouldn't be transporting seeds. You know, people are still transporting seeds. That's, that's the problem. So if, if the two populations were isolated, the one that's here and the one back in the Sahara desert, Sahara mustard that's here would eventually evolve into a new species. How long would that take? 100,000, 500,000, maybe a million years. Um, and it would eventually just naturalize and something insect or a fungal pathogen would evolve here to keep it in check. And it would just take its place in the ecosystem with the other cast of plant species that grow here. But, you know, that that's not going to happen because people are still, you know, there's probably still errant Sahara mustard seeds coming over from the old world and arriving here. And so it's, you know, it's a, uh, and plus things just don't speciate that quickly. I mean, it takes a long time, but it, but in the, in that amount of time it might take for that, for the Sahara mustard that's here to turn into a, to a new species, you know, it might cause the extinction of a number of plants and the ecosystem in the Mojave and Sonoran desert. So. That's crazy. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. I mean, invasive people always try to debate the idea of invasive species and, Normally it's because they just don't understand it, you know. It's like it's like the whole thing. Like I I don't understand this element of the science, so I'm just going to say it's not true, which is you know absurd, of course. I mean, invasive species are they're they're one of the the top five causes of of human caused extinction and impact on biodiversity and habitats, you know. And it's not it's not about some ecological idea some abstract human ecological idea about purity or anything like that. It's got to do with, you know, plants don't exist as autonomous entities. They exist 
as members of ecosystems. And those ecosystems take millions of years to reach a stasis so that every one of those species that's in that ecosystem, that plant community, uh, you know, reaches kind of a balance uh, and no one goes extinct, no one gets outcompeted. Um, everyone finds their little niche, you know, when someone's gonna grow in like a, a little wetland habitat, someone's gonna grow on rocky slopes, et cetera. But when you, you know, and ecosystems of course are separated by things called vicariance barriers, um, you know, which are a mountain range, a fucking, you know, 3000 mile wide ocean, et cetera. And so there's no gene flow, there's no species flow in between those two ecosystems. Well, when humans fuck that up and they bring a plant from 3,000 miles away to a new habitat, sometimes it, the plant can't get established. Sometimes it, uh, you know, it, it just grows fine in a garden setting, whatever. Other times it, it can outcompete uh, native plants that live there and it can reseed itself and it ends up thriving. And the, none of the insect or fungal pathogens that keep it in check in its native ecosystem are in the one that it was just brought to, so it can just go crazy. And that's what we've seen happen with Scotch broom in California and Oregon. That's what we've seen happen with tamarisk and the, the, the desert and, you know, uh, Utah and Arizona, uh, in, you know, in the Southwest. That's what we've seen happen with buffalo grass. That's what we've seen happen with European buckthorn in the Midwest, uh, kudzu in the South. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's, it takes a while to really get it through some people's thick skulls that it's a, how big of an issue it can be. And again, it's not just about native versus non-native or any of that, you know, not all non-natives are invasive, but all invasive species are non-native. And, uh, and that's, you know, why I try to explain to people. And some people are like, well, they're here, you can't do anything about them. Well, all right, you know, you know you're never gonna get it all. You say the same thing to somebody that had cancer, you're never gonna get it all, just give up, fuck it, you know? Just go die. So you know, I still I rip them out when I can. I fucking saw down scotch broom when I can. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll rip out Sahara mustard for 20 minutes if I have the time, and I'm in the desert somewhere botanizing. I just it, every little thing you do is buying time for the species that live there. You know, helping. You're you're playing a part. You know, and uh, and keeping that species that invasive in check, whatever. So yeah, you may never get it all, but you you can certainly help you're still gonna help the native plants that live there. And by, by doing that, you're gonna help the native animals too in many cases, so. So what advice do you have for its, um, you know, people that are uh, newly aspiring botanists or maybe, uh, you know, people in middle school, high school, college that are looking to get into botany, uh, what are some things that you could, uh, you know, advise them on? I mean, number one, just keep it fun. Keep it fun and ask questions and don't accept anything at face value. Always ask questions, always think critically and just fucking read, you know? I mean, that's one of the, I remember when the internet came out and smartphones came out, some people I know, you know, I came from punk rock. A lot of people were knocking it and they were kind of, you know, fuck that, we're not gonna blah, blah. Well, it just depends what you use it for. It's like any tool. You can look at, you know, you can use your smartphone to take 9,000 selfies or, you know, look at pictures of food and asses or you can you know download the wikipedia app and 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 learn about the world around you you can you know take a walk outside and be observing the world and ask questions about it why is this that way i wonder what that why this is like this i wonder what this is where did this come from why do those rocks look like that what is this plant 
you know, and now with this, I mean, the, the internet really has so much fucking positive potential. You know, you can, you can download, you can go to libgen.is and download, you know, fucking $140 textbooks that you otherwise wouldn't be able to access. You can go to Wikipedia and, and learn about the fucking geologic time scale and the, the age of the fucking rocks that you're standing on. There's a, there's an app called rocked that you can go to that is literally a USGS map overlay of the entire fucking continental United States. I mean, this is shit that we take for granted now that like was 40 years ago, you show people this, they'd be like, Oh my God, that's amazing. That's going to make the world such a better place. Well, it just depends if people use it or not, you know? Uh, you can go to their plant ID apps. I mean, there's no shame in those, you know, if you see a plant, you don't know what it is. Use a fucking plant ID app and, and it'll, it might, you know, half the time they're wrong maybe, but it might, you might learn something you can, you know, and then when you learn what a, what a plant is, learn, look up what family it's in. I, I ever tell people, I tell everyone that you want to be a botanist, you know, look at a plant. When you learn what a plant is, Look, look up what family it's in, you know, because that puts it in a context for you. That gives it a story. Now that plant has a story and every plant has a story behind it. But, you know, you see Borgmanzias, those flowers you always see dangling in the Mexican granny's front yards and warm areas, you know, from Texas to California. Then you, you don't know anything about it. Okay. Well, you look it up on Wikipedia. Okay. It's in the nightshade family. Cool. Solanaceae, you know, and then you learn, oh, wow, it's got these really toxic alkaloids in it that can be used to poison people and sometimes are used for hallucinogenic purposes sometimes they're used to rob people because they can they can put people into a stupor oh wow you know many plants and then you catch on on running themes wow many plants in solanaceae the nightshade family tend to have toxic alkaloids in them okay what are alkaloids they're compounds that you know tend to end in ine morphine uh, mescaline caffeine uh, and then, you know, you just keep asking questions. Next thing you know, you're fucking looking at organic chemistry textbooks and trying to understand the difference between an alkaloid and a phenol. And, uh, you know, it's just the pursuit of knowledge and just being curious about the world around you and, and not taking anything for granted. So my son has a question for you. He wants to know what your favorite swear word is. Christ, I don't know. I've been using the word cunt a lot, but that's, you know, that obviously has sexist overtones here. I was hanging out with Australians too much, and uh, they throw the word "cunt" around like it's nothing, and it's not a it's not a sexually charged word down there. I mean, someone can be a good cunt, a happy cunt, a bad cunt, a rotten cunt, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, like I, don't, yeah, like, I tend to not I tend to not use that word for women. I only reserve it for males. Um, but uh, I like that a lot. Uh, you know, uh, fuck is obviously a very common one there's i mean there's you can get crafty with them there's all kinds of uh you know you don't really want to hurt anyone's feelings that's the important part but it it, it is fun to exactly. you know you cocksuckers great you, you know i've but you know some people get offended by that too i've got christ have i've had tons of gay friends my whole life none not not one of them has ever complained about me using the word cocksucker but you know some people are don't like it i don't know it just depends you know it's you can get the crafty throw them around you know see what i like try that. Every shoe and see what fits yeah keep it versatile i like it have uh have you gotten sick at all in your travels you traveled uh, quite a bit around the world uh have you uh, had any kind of sicknesses or injuries or any crazy tales uh as far as travel goes 
Uh, all my injuries and sicknesses I've gotten at home, dislocated shoulders and getting kicked in the ribs, kickboxing. I thought I broke my ribs once. Uh, I tend to get food poisoning once a year, but normally it's while I'm in California. It's not from, from being out. Uh, yeah, no, I've been pretty lucky, man. I mean, I, I got the flu last year and had to go to the hospital for that because I was having breathing trouble. But they gave me Tamiflu and the next day the viral load had gone down. I was feeling better. So no, I've been lucky. I've been lucky on that. And the friend of mine just actually got COVID and he's slowly getting over it. But um, no, I've been lucky on that. I mean, I try not to, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't really eat much meat or dairy. And that seems to be most often the shit that you can get in trouble with in terms of illness. So uh, no, I've been lucky. Knock on wood. Very cool. Uh, is there any other um, plants that you've you've seen? Uh, I know there's lots of weird stuff that you saw when you were in Australia with like novel or strange mechanisms as far as plants go. Um, you know, there's lots of different weird stuff. People are familiar with Venus flytraps, but there's so many other cool different things out there. Um, you know, uh, uh, as far as different plant mechanisms, what are some of the different weird funky ones or something maybe stuck out in your brain as something particularly memorable? Christ, there's a ton of them. I don't know. Stylidium is pretty cool in Australia. That's a member of the sunflower order. It's in its own family, though. They're called the trigger plants, and they got a, they've got like a fifth petal that's been modified. I forget the, the morphology, but either way, they've got this kind of insects will go up to them for nectar and this this thing will pop. They're like sensitive plants, kind of when you when an insect gets close enough, this this trigger will pop and it'll, you know, put a uh, dusting of pollen on the insect's head. And you can actually go trigger them. It's crazy. It's the weirdest fucking thing. And and they're really cool. I mean, they've got, you know, they've got four petals with a fifth petal modified um, into a labellum that tends to hold the, the trigger up. I forget exactly what the trigger was, if it's a fifth petal or if it's some sort of modified stem and note or something, but they're, they're wild. They're really cool. There's a whole shit ton of proteaceae in Australia. All oh, those are all fire dependent. They form these like woody, almost looking like a pine cone type things, but they're not a conifer. They're a flowering plant. They're a really old lineage of flowering plants. And uh, they've got just incredible bracts and flowers and huge inflorescences you know, so it looks like one single flower, but it's composed of like, you know, 300 tiny flowers. Um, and they're all fired. Most of them are fire dependent, you know, and they're, they're really brightly colored. Some of them, it's a really cool family. It's everything from Banksias to Revelias to Hakeias to just a whole bunch of really cool. I mean, that Proteaceae, and it's all Southern Hemisphere too. There's a, there's a ton of cool stuff there. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they, <laughs> there's there's so many there's so many cool plants. Chile had a bunch of uh, a bunch of cool plants in it, especially bromeliads. You know, it's, there's a, a genus called Puya, P-U-Y-A, that grows in Chile and South America in general. And some of them produce these massive six foot tall inflorescences of of like metallic blue to metallic green to like metallic purple flowers. They're a monocot. So they got parallel venation and floral parts and multiples of three. And they look kind of like an agave, like a spiky agave. They've got a rosette of leaf blades. But uh, 
but yeah, they're, I mean, they're wild. Those, it was really cool to see those in habitat. And I grow a ton of those too. You know, they're really easy to grow from seeds. So. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned you really like to grow that one. Do you have any other ones that you like to, to grow or encourage growing in your backyard? Uh, yeah, I mean, milkweeds are always are always great. I, I'm really amped on milkweeds. I've been planting a ton of those out illegally around town. Not really illegally, just un, un, unofficially. But, uh, you know, the milkweeds Allegedly. are Allegedly. huge. It's like a bar of nectar. It's like a buffet of nectar for for pollinators. And so the more bugs you have, the more birds you're going to have. And um, milkweeds are great. I mean, I love Solanaceae, the nightshade family. Those are really easy. Brugmansias. There's a plant called Solandra that's like a scandent vine. So it's a vine, but the nodes are like eight inches to a foot apart. So it ends up looking more like Christmas lights. It's not like a vine that's going to cover a fence or your house. It ends up being like this kind of leaning uh, almost a shrub, but it can completely encircle a house. Like it'll, it'll go into the ground. It goes, there's one in my yard. It goes in the ground of my front yard and then it wraps around and comes into my backyard. Uh, and it's not uh, intrusive. It's not too much. And it produces these huge yellow nightshade flowers on it. And it's self fertile. Uh, Caranthodendron, I just had an Instagram post about that. I got a video coming out on Caranthodendron, C-H-I-R-A-N-T-H-O, dendron. Uh, it's in the Malvaceae. I've seen it in habitat in Oaxaca and Southern Mexico and Guatemala, but they grow fine for us here in California. They probably grow them in Southern Oregon too. And uh, the flowers are incredible. They're, they're totally weird. I mean, they're, they, it's a huge grapefruit size, maybe a baseball sized red flower and then it's got what looks like a hand coming out of it, like a literally five digits, each one with a yellow uh, series of anthers on them, hand. And uh, it looks like a hand coming out of this flower. It looks like a devil's hand. And they're incredible. And I've been trying to grow a ton of those from seed and cutting. And the seed needs a hot water treatment. So you got to dump boiling water over it and then let it soak. Um, but yeah, I'm amped on that one. I mean, that it grows so fast too. And the areas in the country where you can grow it, it, it does great, so. I've never heard of a boiling water treatment on seeds. It's definitely the first I've ever heard of that. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of seeds, uh, you know, a lot of plants in the Fabaceae, the pea family, a lot of plants in the Mallow family, Malvaceae, uh, you, need the, you need to do a hot water treatment to get them to grow. You know, our native California flannel bush needs that. You know, and that's normally the hot water is not what would do it in nature. Normally it would be a bird's gut that would scarify the seed or a, a wildfire. Um, but the hot water is another way to just mimic that. Basically, it's, you, you're basically scarifying the seed coat, causing that seed coat to expand and, uh, you know, water be, water be able to permeate through the seed coat. So. Awesome. Yeah. So um yeah one second pull my notes up here um what is your favorite plant uh you know that you're growing at home what are is there any other plants that are interesting or noteworthy that you grow in your own home garden or is there anything that you'd love to try and um uh, you know if, if you could recommend two or three things uh to people um to grow to kind of gorilla spread out there that are native to north america that need kind of some help uh what would you recommend 
I mean, the easiest thing to grill or grow is just sowing the seed directly in the in the fucking spot you're gonna put them. You know, I mean, I, you could do this with acorns or, or horse chestnuts, aka California buckeye, in the genus Aesculus, A E S C U L U S. You know, collect the seeds in the fall, collect the shit ton, and just go around town uh, planting acorns or planting buckeye seeds. Buckeye seeds are like a little bit bigger than a golf ball, but um, you know, just walk around with a bag of seeds and a little trowel and just, you know, I mean, that, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, you know, I've been lucky where I live. I live in Oakland, which could be kind of a lawless area to begin with. I mean, people drive through stoplights all the time. Uh, people do sideshows in the street. So, you know, me me taking out a couple tacky rose bushes to plant, you know, my own weird Mexican tree composites or, you know, devil's hand plants or whatever. I mean, they, no one really complains about it, but, you know, I imagine in some other areas, people would be really stringent or territorial, or lands, landscapers might. So, but, you know, go to a vacant lot and, uh, you know, in the spring with a bag full of seeds or in the fall with a bag full of seeds and just have at it. But, you know, if you're going to, if you want to do it, you want to do it good. You know, I mean, I'll go into areas, I'll, I'll clear out weeds because I don't want the weeds competing with what I plant. I'll get tree companies to dump mulch in places and then use the mulch to suppress the weeds and also keep the, the soil from getting direct sun and, you know, moisture evaporating from it. And then, of course, that mulch breaks down and feeds the soil with nutrients as fungi and bacteria break the mulch down. So, I mean, there's, you know, you can go pretty deep if you want, but the, the easiest thing is just planting seeds in the planting tree seeds in the in the fall or spring you know we had a, a question uh, from chess is uh what are your opinions on soma or any cool botany other of other hallucinogenic plants like salvia divinorum that you could recommend what's what's soma uh it was a a book about hallucinogenic plants from back in the day um there's actually a really good one give me two seconds i can highly recommend There is the, in my opinion, what is probably the Bible currently, um, the uh, ethnopharmacological um, search for pharma, uh, psychoactive drugs. Uh, it's 50 years of research put out by MAPS. Uh, so if you are looking for something that is well-researched, um, you know, white papers and written by people that actually know what they're talking about uh, with the science and the white papers to back it up. Uh, it is hands down the best collection and it is, comes in two volumes. Um, you have the, uh, um, the first volume, which is the 1967 symposium collection of papers. And then you have the, uh, the um, 2017 uh, collection of papers and it's, it's quite extensive um, as far as uh, content. But highly, highly recommended if, if it's someone that's listening that really wants to have a, a proper, uh, properly educated and well-resourced uh, source of knowledge on those types of topics and plants in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I grow salvia divinorum just because I love the genus. I mean, there's fucking 800 species of salvia and they're, they're all fucking great for hummingbirds and, and pollinators. Uh, salvia divinorum was just on my list because it's so rare and it's just it's so cool and there's obviously the ethnobotanical part behind it i've never actually done it um i've had one or two friends say it was great and 
a handful say it was terrible and it's really weird and fucked up, which is hilarious. But, um, you know, and I grow that one a lot and I'll, I'll sell them, you know, cuttings, 10 or 15 bucks. But, um, but, uh, you know, I've never, yeah, I've never done it, but I mean, mostly, you know, I'll, I'll do psychedelics once in a while, I'll eat some mushrooms, but it's whenever I do, it's not, it's not a recreational thing. You know, it's not something I, I have bad trips when I, when I do mushrooms, they're, they're good in the long run. I mean, I need to go through them, but they're not pleasant They're You know, I'm basically shitting out all the negativity and things that I haven't dealt with and whatever. Um, so that's really, you know, that's really the only times I do those. And it's mostly, like I said, just for personal growth to understand myself better, understand what's eating at me. Uh, I've never done that Tura. I've never done any of the Solanaceae. Uh, I've never done <clears throat> mescaline, not opposed to it, but, um, you, you know, you've actually found some of that. It's actually quite, for a lot of people that don't know, it's actually quite a rare plant. What is the, 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 uh, peyote buttons They're They're not super common is my understanding. No, they're not. I mean, a lot of them get poached, you know, the whole native American church thing is really kind of weird. And, you know, it's, it's not really it's its own religion. It's kind of just there are native, you know, most of the Native American church members are also Christian too. So it's I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough about it to really talk, but I know it's kind of an, an industry down there. And I know, you know, that plant, Lofafra Williamsii, is uh is pretty rare in South Texas, you know, and I've I've spent a bunch of time in South Texas. My girlfriend is from there. Um I've been going there for years and uh, it's such a fucking cool habitat and it sucks to see, uh, you know, you'll come up on specimens that have just been cut. They've been cut the wrong way. They're dead now. There've been entire populations that have been wiped out by people poaching it, you know, and it's such an easy plant to grow if you have the right conditions for it, which is just, you know, fast draining soil warmth um, and uh, fertilize it every once in a while. Is, but uh but in the in habitat, you only ever see it on limestone. You all, all, always, uh, you you only ever see it on limestone-based soils, whether it's rocky soils or mud. You know, in northern Mexico, you get some of the populations growing on like these really weird, like muddy flats that flood, and the plants will actually be buried and then uh, get exposed later on, or they'll recess into the soil. Their root can kind of contract and pull themselves into the soil. It's a really cool fucking plant, but. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't know that. That's so trippy. But you know, like I, it's like everything. It's just there's too many fucking people, and they're just over harvesting it, and they don't. Too many people don't care to learn, and they don't have an appreciation for it, and so it's really there have been major losses in peyote populations. What, what a lot of people. What a lot of, what a lot of people don't know is uh, over in Thailand, you can get them uh, for like three to five dollars, and they're super common in people's offices. And they have oh, no yeah. idea that yeah, they're, they're hallucinogenic at all. You'll see green, you'll see greenhouses over there in Thailand where they're just filled with these monster peyotes. They they can grow them really well over there. They just I don't know how they do it. I think they just put them in basically like pure perlite, and it's so humid anyway that uh, they probably they maybe don't even need the water. I don't know, but yeah, I mean they're they're huge over there, and so. Do cacti, do cacti have mycorrhizal associations with them or are they similar to brassicas without any? I would imagine it's pretty hard for mycorrhizae to survive in the, in the desert. I, I've never heard of them having 
mycorrhizal symbionts. I mean, there's, you know, when you get into soil chemistry, it's, I don't know that much about it still. I know there's actinomycetes, which are actually bacteria that for so long were thought to be fungi. There's, uh, there's of course, you know, AM mycorrhizae, there's uh, ectomycorrhizae, et cetera. But I mean, I, the only mushrooms I've ever seen in the desert have only, have all, they've always only been Montagnia arenaria or uh, Podaxis pistillaris, which are both saprotrophic. So I, I'd imagine that cacti are not mycorrhizal, but I don't, I don't know for sure. That'd be a good question for my friend, Jim Mosseth, who's a cellular anatomist and a retired botany professor at UT Austin. Fucking great guy. We had another question from chat. Have you observed any uh, interesting or unusual uh, pest insects in your time? Uh, you've had a chance to observe some pretty unique populations of plants. Is there any, uh, any strange or unique insects that maybe stuck out or pests that stuck out to you uh, or maybe something that mutated the plants in a very bizarre way or something like that? I mean, man, I've been, I've been fucking dealing with white flies uh, for years. And the only thing I've come up with, I've tried everything, you know, pyrethrins, et cetera, that just kills everything else. Um, it's just spraying the underside of the leaves. So, but I mean, in, in habitat, like pest insects that I've come across, I mean, not offhand, you know, not offhand that I've seen. I've, I've got a microscope. I just, you know, I saw like a baby thrip larvae inside a liverwort uh, gemma cup last night, you know, but that was, <laughs> it was just me fucking around with a microscope late at night. I, you know, the, I'm trying to think. Maybe there's something, but nothing I can think of offhand, you know, just a weird insect I've seen that I've been like, whoa, what the fuck? What is that? Have you uh, had any uh, insect bites or anything like that? <laughs> or any, uh, you know, here's a here's a question I've always wondered and, and having traveled in both in South America and in Africa, I have not run into similar. Um, North America seems to have a lot of plants where you rub up against them and they give you pretty nasty rashes. You have poison oak, poison sumac, um, you know, poison ivy. Uh, it doesn't seem to have, I don't run into a lot of those types of plants in other parts of the world. Am I just you know, freakishly lucky, or is that just something that just seems to be more common in North America for some weird reason? No, they're out there, man. I mean, there's members of the nettle family that are deadly in New Zealand. You know, you have to walk through like a thicket of them. Utica ferox is one of them. You know, it gets like half inch long. Uh, I don't know what you would call them. They're not spines. They're just epidermal uh, prickles but they're filled with fluid and then those have actually killed people before. Like you've fallen into like a thicket of them, just sent their body into shock. Um, there's a ton of uh, weird euphorbias that have um, like nidoscolus you get in, in South America and Mexico. That's a member of the Euphorbiaceae that a friend of mine grabbed. He was falling down a landslide, grabbed one of those and it, same thing sent his body into shock. He had to go to Mexico and get a epinephrine shot, which is, you know, same shot would have cost like nine hundred dollars and the fucking broken US healthcare system, but down there it was like three dollars. It saved his life. He was going into shock. Um there's a ton of plants. I mean, fuck, man. I know Australia's got Australia, of course, has, you know, shit that will send you to the emergency room, plants and animals both. Uh so no, I don't. I don't think it's just Anacardiaceae, which is what all the quote poison uh, sumac and ivy 
the, the they're all in the mango family the the uh, anacardiaceae the mango i didn't know they're related to mangoes that, that's crazy yeah anacardiaceae yeah which is a really cool family but you know there was a there was a member of that you know, sema carpus atra uh in new caledonia that people will get allergic reactions to just from, just from standing under i don't know if it's the same compound of poison ivy that you rush y'all but well, the the worst one I remember was in in Jamaica. The the was it Menchinetti or Menchinet? What how do you how do you pronounce that? The Menchinet tree. Are you familiar with that one? No, Menchinet. What family? Do you know? Uh, hold on, let me let me double check the spelling on that. Manahot? Euphorbia of some kind or what? Uh, so the the natives, the Arawak in a uh, Menchinil tree. Uh, the the hippo hippo ma hippo main mancinelli mancinella is the the Latin name. It's in okay. Hippo main mancinella is a species of flowering plant in the spurge family Euphorbiaceae. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there you go. In North America, I'm, yeah. But. I'm not familiar with that one, no. So so it has a wood. If you burn it, it'll make you blind. It has a compound in this in the um, in an oil in the leaves in the tree that will uh, make your uh, uh, skin totally um, not able to handle sunlight. So you'll you'll get really severe burns from sunlight. The Arawak Indians used to chase the the uh, Spaniards underneath of it and then wait for the rains to come and then let them suffer in their armor. Uh, it's pretty pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, Euphorbiaceae has got some weird shit in it, man. I mean, really toxic. You know, the castor bean plant, which ricin comes from, is in Euphorbiaceae, yep. too. Yeah, so. the, uh, the the sand people, the original uh, people that live in the bush, uh, sometimes they're called the bush people in southern Africa, actually use the, the castor beans for their arrows. And they'll bring down giraffes and elephants and hippos and all kinds of stuff with tiny little, basically arrows that are basically giant acacia needles. Like, they're not very big at all. They just sneak up on them, hit them with a needle, and they're done. It's, it's yeah. crazy. Wow. Yeah, there's those plants too that uh, create domatia. They create little, you know, houses for insects like that they use as guardians to to live in. Like speaking of acacias, a lot of acacias do the same thing. So a lot of acacias have some, some pretty fun compounds in the roots too. <clears throat> but. Uh, are there any plants that you are like? You have like a wish list. I know you said you were tracking in your app. You have like four thousand, uh, you know, or whatever, whatever finds. Do you have any any wish list for plants that you're looking for? Or you want to try and go find next? Yeah, I mean, before the whole pandemic started, I had plans to go to South Africa. I need to return to Southern Chile. You know, probably next December, because um, we only got to see the north last time. You know, we can go to the Araucaria Forest or Fitzroya, you know, which is like the South American redwood. We didn't make it down there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not so much plants, just, you know, regions I want to botanize. Like I said, I mean, I, I don't see, like I said, I don't see plants so much anymore as these autonomous entities. I see it's more the whole fucking ecosystem, the whole plant community I want to check out, you know, and see how they interact and what else lives there and what fucking soils they grow on and you know, what weird directions evolution has taken in these places. So you just rely on the fact that if you go to somewhere new, you're going to encounter something new, basically, right? 
Yeah, it's the best way to learn. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, there'll be a couple plants I want to see, you know, bucket list plants if I go to a spot. But then there's way more that I had no idea about that I learn about once I get there and see them. You know, so. So what's your what's a bucket list plant that you haven't seen yet? Oh, Christ. Uh, Atherotaxis is one that's a kind of like a South, it's a Southern Hemisphere redwood family. Uh, it lives in Tasmania and they're super fucking old. I mean, they there's, you know, fossils of them from 125 million years ago. Uh, Fitzroya is another one, same family. It's an old redwood uh, relative. They call them alerse trees down in Chile. Uh, they unfortunately have mostly been logged. Uh, Pinochet's crazy ass got, you know, the fascist dictator in the 70s got a bunch of them uh, and just uh, logged them to shit after he they threw their coup. But uh, their US sponsored coup. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, we're talking like massive trees that can get fucking 200 feet tall and you know, eight, nine foot diameter growing in the uh, the Patagonian temperate rainforest. I would love to see those. I'd love to see what else uh, grows with them. Um, right, because they're like a habitat themselves, right? Yeah, and there's probably a bunch of weird shit that grows in the canopy. And I mean, they're, they're literally like a mirror reflection with the equator being the mirror of our, you know, our Northern California redwoods. So, uh, yeah, I would just love to see, you know, the same thing, a lineage that goes back 150 million fucking years. So those are, those are two of them. I mean, a lot, a lot of conifers, a lot of, uh, trying to think, I mean, South Africa is incredible too. There's a ton of stuff down there, a ton of geophytes and members of the iris family, et cetera. So what it was are the stone plants i when i was in south africa that was by far they had so many just weird trippy stone plants oh light ops yeah that's another one well which too same thing so um <clears throat> yeah i don't know well which is definitely one i'd like to go see and i hope to make it there uh, you know i guess it just depends on seeing how the virus turns out you know i think we're going to get another flare-up in the winter i think it's going to be be pretty bad and i think uh you know i don't know it's gonna it's gonna come what <laughs> come what may i mean i've known a number of people that have had this thing and they all said it was like the worst fucking sickness they've ever had and uh you know it can it can just be a genetic toss-up whether you whether you get really 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 ill or not so yeah i don't know we'll see but i got a bunch of bunch of places i'd like to go so is there any any other places or locations in particular that maybe uh, are, are high up on your list or people could look forward to? Is there any content maybe you got filmed that people people could uh, expect to see coming up soon that you're excited about? Yeah, Hawaii. I mean, Hawaii's one. I've never I never thought I'd say I wanted to go to Hawaii. It seems like a fucking you know ecologically ravaged tourist hellhole, but there's still a ton of really cool endemics, notably in the Astoralis, the sunflower order that grow there. Uh, higher up in the mountains I'd, I'd love to make it there um there's uh yeah i mean there's there's a there's a ton of places i want to i i want to go and i i've I, I haven't even been to the east coast to study any of those those plants you know like the appalachia for instance like higher elevation appalachian mountains um i'd love to go there i mean there's 
there's, you know, it's, it's basically, unfortunately, where the stage we're at now in human history is just sifting through the crumbs that have been left over from, you know, the, the rapid, the last 100 or 200 years of human expansion and fucking growth of what I call the human tumor. I'd love to go back to Southern Mexico, been there a bunch, you know, see the giant pack of Sirius Weberi uh, and uh, the cloud forest there. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's so much, man. Uh, that, that that was something else I was going to mention earlier. One of my fa my personal favorite plants, especially when I lived in Colorado, was the high altitude orchids. Those coral banded, the parasitic orchids. A lot of people don't know that there are completely parasitic orchids that are out there, and uh, there's actually quite a few different co cool species of parasitic orchids uh, from around the world. But um, those coral bandeds are really neat because they only exist for one to two weeks a year. They pop up. They're they're Ruchula mushroom parasites and. Uh, uh, one, by far one of my favorites is there any other cool parasitic orchids that, that you've observed i know i've seen a couple in your videos uh yeah cephalanthra austinae is another good one the phantom orchid it's entirely white <clears throat> um yeah i mean there's a yeah the mycoheterotrophic orchids um yeah cephalanthra is probably my, my favorite one uh, i've seen some hexelectris in uh sonora mexico and uh you know, another high elevation, they parasitize fungi. But um, yeah, cephalanthra is probably top. It's, you get in Southern Oregon too, but you need, you know, intact forest that hasn't been logged or fucked up too bad to be able to see it, so. What's that, what's that parasitic plant in California you see all the time, they pop up, they have like a stocky of pink flowers and then they disappear? Uh, Sarcodes, sanguinea maybe, that's an ericaceae, you get, uh, uh, I see them all the time in San Francisco in that area. Oh shit! I don't know. I don't know what that. I don't know what that. San Francisco. Well, actually, yeah. actually, it was this was south of San Francisco a little bit, but towards Santa Cruz. But uh, Pedicularis, maybe. Huh. Pedicularis. I've seen, them, I've seen them up in Humboldt as well, so I'd have to look it up a little bit more. But anyway, yeah, probably just keep in oral oral bankasia. So. Very cool. Anyway, well, I, I got to get going, guys. But uh, absolutely, yeah, I appreciate your time. Um, why don't you tell everybody how to find you and uh, you know the different places that you post your content and uh, how do they can support you if they want to try and uh, you know uh, help you in, in your endeavors? Uh, yeah, sure thing, man. Uh, well, I got the fucking YouTube page. I got uh, got Instagram. Um, and if they want, there's a, I think on the Instagram there's a link to the Bonfire website where you can buy merch you know, hoodies, I got stop humanity face masks, um, all kinds of tongue in cheek or not so tongue in cheek, uh, little, little jabs at the society from a perspective of natural history and botany. Uh, and then, you know, I got a Patreon too, if people feel so inclined to keep supporting the content, but you know, I'm going to, I used to work for the railroad. I'm out on medical now. I'm, I might just be retiring from that at some point and trying to do this full time to see if I can swing it. And um, I'm really enjoying it so far. And I'm enjoying teaching people. And I'm enjoying showing people these places and things and, and more so just turning them on to, you know, the world of knowledge that's uh, accessible via the internet and, you know, getting them excited about, you know, taking a new approach to the world around them. So, I mean, that's what makes me happy. If, if I can, I'm just trying to live comfortably. You know, I don't care about being rich or any of that shit. 
just trying to be able to, to sustain myself doing this. And the, the most, the most happiness I get out of it is teaching other people and getting those fucking emails that say, you know, you changed the way I look at the world. So I can keep doing that. I could do this shit the next 20 years and be, be content. So well, you certainly put a my, uh, smile on my face uh, a couple of times a week with your content. And I know uh, everyone else here at our farm uh, watches it as well. And we're, we're huge fans. I know Marty and his family are, are including his children are huge fans of yours as well. And uh, uh, we, we really hope and look forward to all your, uh, your future content. And thank you for all you do for the community and in, in helping educate people about plants and getting them excited about botany in a way that maybe their, uh, their high school botany, their, you know, biology teacher didn't have the same uh, level of skill that you do in terms of entertainment. Yeah. The education system fails people a lot of times, but every once in a while you get that cool teacher that, you know, you, you remember, the, you remember the, for the next five decades of your life, you know, some a damn school board and their, uh, their problem, you know, their, their crusade against swearing, I think really is the heart of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right, so. Well, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Uh, you are by far one of our favorite people to watch. Uh, thanks again, and uh, we look forward to helping spread your spread the word of your wonderful education. Yeah, thanks a lot for the opportunity, man. Appreciate it. Take care, you guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye. Man, what a great episode! Uh, sure was wonderful having him on, and um, uh you know we uh really enjoy watching his content regularly uh, marty and i both are huge fans of his his show and uh, his content and uh, so is everyone else uh pretty much that i <laughs> i know so um uh if you aren't familiar be sure to check him over out over at crime pays but botany doesn't uh, he also has a patreon if you want to financially support his content uh you know like us uh he gets demonetized pretty quickly based on uh the style of his content and the you know so make sure you can help him out if you do have a couple of extra bucks he is one of the best sources of knowledge if you are looking to learn more about plants and laugh while you're doing it um marty uh, stepped away for a moment till i believe he's going to be back here shortly um i've been focused here at the farm and um just getting clones ready we have a trying to get fourteen thousand clones ready for our five acres we're beginning a new project we have a one acre uh, catfish and uh, bluegill and night um, uh, uh, sunfish uh, pond we're going to add a little a few extra fish uh, we're not quite sure yet what we're going to do to balance the population out in there uh, but we're going to add maybe a few yellow perch and maybe um, uh, an area that we can have a few more bait fish in as well um, there is quite a few bait fish in there, but uh, I'd like to expand that with a few more planted areas. Uh, but we're going to use that to supply our five acres of outdoor cannabis growing. So we're going to basically do an aquaponics, uh, a, a living soil hybrid system that is over five acres in size using a one acre pond. Uh, so it's going to be quite the cool project on top of all the other wonderful aquaponic content that we'll be bringing you. Uh, if you are looking for really wonderful clones, uh, we have super awesome, healthy clones, thousands of them, in fact, uh, here at uh, Organic Innovations. If you are a licensed OMMA uh, producer and cultivator in the state of Oklahoma, we are happy to serve you. Also look for our concentrate and flower up at Vertica at their 
Oklahoma City location, as well as uh, K-Rads over in Bakchito and uh, Urban Farms over in Durant, Oklahoma. So we have aquaponic cannabis or concentrates. We have uh, some more concentrates in the pipeline here too that should be hitting the shelves uh, in the next month or two. Uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff we're just get, making, waiting on packaging and testing and all that stuff. So uh, look forward to that here in the short term. And if you do need clones in the state of Oklahoma, we got you. Um, yeah, other than that, just doing soil sampling, getting the soil prep, doing IMO collection, making sure we got IL, all the IMO for the five acres, making sure we got all the water tested for the pond, making sure we got everything straight, you know, all of the clones uh, produced in mass. Um, we are, looks like we're going to have a little bit of a setback. It looks like we have, I'm dreading that it looks like on the calendar that we're going to turn into last year where we have uh, the next 14 days straight are going to be thunderstorms and rain. Uh, so uh, it's going to make planting hard. It's going to be, be making using that tractor to put the drip lines in the field hard or sending up irrigation hard. So we're going to do as much as we can on that, uh, uh, given the climate that we're given. But uh, it's going to be a bit of a challenge here in the next couple of weeks. So I think we're going to focus on indoor stuff and, um, you know, maybe get everything else prepped as best we can uh, in the meantime. Other than that, uh, getting ready to, we have some cool classes, uh, talking with some really awesome co-host guests about doing a, a series of classes out here in Oklahoma with some people that you guys most definitely have heard of and been on the show. So we're working on that behind the scenes, no announcements yet, but we got some really cool stuff we're cooking up that I think you guys will be really excited on, especially if you guys are really big into aquaponics or some big names that we're doing. Uh, Marty and I are talking about doing uh, some other cool stuff here in the future. And uh, we've been making slow and steady progress on the, the uh, video versions of the class. We're doing both a home scale and a commercial scale version of the class in a recorded format with a whole bunch of cool recorded content that Marty and I have kind of compiled over the years at different farms. Um, uh, as part of a really in-depth and more kind of a different way to look at the commercial class and the, the personal class than we've done in the, in the past. We've kind of done off of a deck with an in-person with some, some you know, plants on, on site and content and some video stuff. This one's really cool because we've had a lot of videos or different things that we've managed to film around the world or at different places. Um, so this is going to be really cool to kind of show you guys a whole bunch of different kinds of stuff all in one kind of uh, set of content uh, available for those that are looking for that. So, and then we have a couple of other neat projects that are in the pipeline that um, you know, we're hoping to, to get going. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's all I can talk about at the moment. Um, other than that, uh, uh, we have a couple of cool new guests in the pipeline uh, and uh, keep looking for, keep looking for content here on the Bonk's YouTube channel. We'll be back again on uh, Tuesday or Thursday. Tuesdays are going to be a little bit hit and miss, at least through hit, uh, planting season, and then we'll be back to a little bit more of a normal schedule. Uh, Thursdays will be kind of the, the reliable day here, at least for the short term uh, for, for podcasts. Thanks a lot for watching. We appreciate uh, everyone out there. Again, please check out Marty at AP Meds. Uh, please check out Joey and uh, thank him for his time and check out his amazing and hysterical and edgy informative content over at Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't uh, on YouTube. And uh, you can find me at Potent Products, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, and whatever favorite podcast app that you are used to using, as well as in video format over on youtube.com under YouTube slash uh, YouTube and then just search potent products. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care and we'll catch you guys again next time. Cheers.